I'm glad you're here. So, um, we just had Rosh Hashanah, and we're, we're going into uh, Yom Kippur. And so these are, these are awesome days, awesome days out of the year. You know, all, all days are not created equal uh, in, in, in Jewish thought. And um, there, are, there are some times where if you invest effort in a, in a particular period, that it, it pays off much greater. And so there's like, uh, you know, sometimes you can plant seeds in very rich soil and the, 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 uh, the outpouring from, in terms of crops is, is unexpectedly great. So these days are the richest soil of the entire year in terms of, in terms of what can be planted and, and what we can harvest in terms of, uh, in terms of just uh, results. Because all the gates are open. Um, our sages teach that, that Hashem is closest to us now than the entire year, just in terms of just, again, all the gates being opened. So, so it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time. So let's, let's just go over some thoughts, what it means to be in this new year. So, you know, I had a, an experience uh, a bunch of years ago. I was in Jerusalem, and I was in the, the, the dressing room of the, the, the mikveh there in the, in the old city. And there was an old man, he, I don't know how old he was, but he was, let's say 80, I don't know if that's, a, it's just a guess, but he looked old. And, and, uh, and he was so excited about something. Uh, this was an old man in Jerusalem who was talking to me, and he was showing me something, and I, I, he was speaking Hebrew to me, and I don't really know much Hebrew, but a few words, so, and he was, he was saying to me over and over again, Chadash! Chadash, Chadash. Luckily, that's one word that I know. It means new. Chadash means new. So, and what he was showing me was um, his his tzitzis. You know, the uh, the his, the the talis that you wear under your shirt. That's what he was showing me, and he was basically dancing with it in his hand. I mean, an 80-year-old man, he's got a new pair of tzitzis, which for most people would not be like a climactic event. But to show you the level that he was on, he was dancing with these tzitzas saying to me, saying to me, a stranger, because he'd never seen me before. I certainly had never seen him before. So he had literally pulled a stranger in order to celebrate with him. And he, was, he just kept on saying, chadash, chadash, chadash. So anyway, why am I telling you this now? Because the world around us is chadash. God, this, that's what Rosh Hashanah is. God has made a new world. It's a brand new world. It's a brand new world. Now, on some level, and we addressed this last week, but let me just hit the point just very quickly, just to review. I've always had this question, which is, on the one hand, if the whole world is new all of the time, because that's also a very strong teaching in Torah, the world is constantly new. So then what's special about Rosh Hashanah when we say, when we talk about the newness of the world? So the... The answer I'd like to suggest, and I ran this by a couple of big rabbis, and they, they like this answer, which is that this is the beginning of all beginnings. Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of all beginnings. In other words, we've got a whole new year of beginnings coming our way. But now this is the beginning of all of those beginnings that are coming our way. And that if a person has the proper kavanah, the proper holy intention on these days... They can mold all of the beginnings that are coming our way and direct them toward the cause that we want them to be directed toward. 
Because we have a very strong dictum in the, in the Talmud that in the way that a person wants to be led, for good or for bad, by the way, that's the direction that a person is led. In other words, opportunities, God creates opportunities for a person which will lead them in a direction that they want to be led. Now, of course, you have to seize those opportunities, right? You know, one of the, one of the deepest things in Torah, in terms of our understanding of the way God runs the world, is that everything is in God's hands and everything is in our hands at the same time. And there's a story that I heard from Rav Shlomo which, which underscores this. And it's, it concerns the Berditchev Rebbe. So the Berditchev Rebbe did two things in private. One was make Kiddush Friday night by himself. And the other was to shake the Lulav and the Esrig on Sukkot also by himself. And there was an orphan that he was overseeing the education of. And the father of the orphan came to the Berditchev Rebbe in a dream and said, you know something, you're really in charge of my son's education. It's not proper that, that he shouldn't be able to see and learn from you how to make Kiddush and how to shake Lulav and Esrik. And so, so he, he said, I'll let, him, let me see how to make Kiddush, but, but not Lulav and Esrik. So, so, if I remember the story properly, the kid hid for Lulav and Esrik. And when he saw Lulav and Esrik, he passed out. So why? What happened? So the explanation is the following, that Kiddush, what you're doing, the reason why we stand Friday night when we make Kiddush is because we're testifying. So we're, 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 we're declaring that God created the world. That's what, that's what, that's what Kiddush is. We're saying God made the world. So that means everything is in God's hands. So that the kid was okay with. But Lulav and Esrog, it's in your hands, and you determine which direction it goes in. That means that God's putting the world in your hands. That he couldn't take, he just passed out. Right? So, so it's a dialectic. It's a dialectic. And, and, um, and so when I say that God leads you in the direction that you want to be led in, that's what the Talmud says, the way I would explain that, the way I would explain the meaning of that is, God creates opportunities for you in the direction that you want to go. But then you have to seize those, those opportunities. You see how it's in God's hands, but at the same time he puts it back into our hands, and then we put it back into God's hands. It's a never-ending cycle. This is, this is, the, amazing, this is the amazingness of... Say it again? That phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, very consistent with that. That's right. Okay, so... So now let's, let's go further into this. So, so, Rosh Hashanah, there's a very popular misunderstanding and, um, that Rosh Hashanah is the anniversary of the creation of the world. And it's true and it's not true. It's true in that it is the creation and the beginning, but what is it the beginning actually of? It's the day that human beings were created. And since that's the purpose of the world then that's what we celebrate as the beginning of the creation of the world. So it's actually the sixth day of creation, Rosh Hashanah. Now, think of it on this level. I think it's a, a beautiful idea. Six in Gematria is the letter Vav. And if you think of Hashem's name, Vav means and. Vav is a conjunction in Hebrew. Vav, Vav means a connection. Right? It ties two things together. 
And so mankind is born on the sixth day, which is the letter Vav, because human beings are the connection between heaven and earth. And if you think of Hashem's holiest name, Yud, if you picture it going from top to bottom, Yud and Hay and Vav and Hay, the bottom Hay, all the, all the rabbis say stand for, stands for this world. And the Yud and the Hay, that's the upper reaches, right? Of the cosmos, of the heavens. And what's in between is the letter Vav. This is human beings tying heaven and earth together. So this is our job. This is our job, and this is what we rededicate ourselves toward. Okay. So, so I want to give you another perspective, which is, which is there's something really far out about Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur for that, for that matter, which is that it's happening during the seventh month of the year. And this is so... This is really, it's really wild, actually. Here, let me just make it very simple for you. We celebrate our new year in the middle of the year. I can't put it more straight out than that. Who else celebrates their new year in the seventh month of the year? That's, that's a wild construct. That's wild. That's wild. Okay, so we're going to go into it. So what is so what is what what what's going on there? So let me give you one answer from from before, and then I'm going to say over something new. The answer from before what 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 came to me one time was that, you know, because because so much of Torah, the message of so much of Torah is that you can begin again at any moment, every moment, right? That we get to the middle of our lives, we get to the middle of projects, we get to the middle of relationships, right? And we think, this is what it is. It can't change. It's done. So God comes to tell us, no, you can begin again even when you're in the middle. So in the middle of the year, we're celebrating the new year. We're celebrating beginnings. You know, Rosh Hashanah is called Yom Truah. The sound of the Truah. Truah is that sound of the shofar that goes... Right? And if you think of it just in this way, something that came to me is that it's supposed to sound like a cry, right? But again, it's... What I'm hearing is openings. Right? Because it's not one solid blast. It's not the tekiah. In other words, Yom Trua is a day of openings. Because everything is opening up in front of us because of that newness. Because of that strong message that we can begin again at any point. So, but now for another perspective. The seventh, the seventh month, if you think of a cube, the structure of a cube, you've got six sides on a cube. Front and back, that's two. The two sides, that's four. And then top and the bottom, that's six. If you think of like dice, it goes up to the number six. Because there's six sides. Right? That's the cube. So what's the seventh side? If, if Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are coming during the seventh month, what is this idea of the seventh? So, Rebetzin Smiles brought from Rabbi Weinberg, from B'nai Brach, this idea, very beautiful, that the seventh is the inside. That's the, that's the inner dimension. Okay, so in other words, Tishrei 
This month, if you will, is the soul of the entire year. And it would make sense if you think of it in that way, because it's when Rosh Hashanah is, it's when Yom Kippur is, it's when Sukkot is, it's when Hoshana Rabbah is, it's when Shemini Yatzeris is, and Simchas Torah. Right? It's when we begin reading the Torah all over again. It's the soul of the year. It's absolutely the soul of the year. So it makes sense that this would be the seventh month, which is the inside, right? The inside of the inside. Now, there's something very interesting about this number seven. And in terms of, because it's also the number of Shabbos. Shabbos is the ultimate, we call the Messianic period, the the Zmana Tikkun, the, the Gula Shlema, the ultimate fixing of the world that the world is evolving toward. We call that day the Great Shabbos. So the ultimate fixing in Shabbos, they go hand in hand. Or we call the Messianic period the day that will be all Shabbos. Right? So, seventh represents perfection. So, so on the one hand, it's what we're striving toward. And on the other hand... We just said it represents the middle, the inside of the inside. So what will be what will be the ultimate fixing, the ultimate realization of the perfection of this world where the inside becomes the outside, where the soul of creation becomes manifest throughout creation. Right? Where the seven which stands for the inner aspect, the soul, correlates with the ultimate completion of the world. You see, and you've got this teaching in a very strong way in terms of the Ark. The Aaron Kodesh, the golden Ark, where the Luchos, the tablets, with the Torah on them were put in. You see, God told us, if you look in Parshish Truma, you can see how, it's, how it was supposed to be built. It was gold on the inside, and it was gold on the outside. And the sages say that this is what a person... This is the, how a person should strive to be. That their insides should match their outsides. Right? With a lot of us, there's that contradiction. Right? How we feel inside isn't necessarily what we're manifesting outside. Now, I'll tell you something else. There's another detail. There's another detail. Rabbi Green pointed this out. Something very beautiful. You see, if you actually look in the Torah, how the Ark was constructed, you had the golden inside then you had a whole layer of wood. Then you had the outside. So in other words, it's not so simple that the inside is just going to match the outside because you have this layer of wood. We have these blockages in ourselves. So the inside is actually always trying to catch up to the outside. Or rather, the outside is always trying to catch up to the inside. See, it's not just so simple because there's that, there's that barrier of wood in between. And that's how the ark is made also. And so when the sages say that, you're inside, that, that you have to be like the ark, that the inside should match the outside, they also knew about the layer of wood in between. <laughs> they also knew about the obstacles that we face. So it's a little bit, our whole life, is a little bit like chasing a receding horizon. I don't know, if that's sort of a cliche. I don't know if you guys know what that means, or if you've experienced it, but it became a cliche for good reason, even though it's kind of fallen out of usage. You don't hear people talk about chasing the receding horizon much these days. But, you know, if you, if you look, like, where is, like, at an ocean where the sky meets the water, and you want to get the exact moment where the sky meets the water, but the further out you go, 
The further out, it's sort of like just ahead, it's just ahead, it's just ahead, it's just ahead. You see, why is that? Because God is infinite and our soul is infinite. Which means that God puts a piece of His infinity inside of us, which means that we'll never run out of levels to reach. In other words, that's not... That's the beauty of what it means to be alive. That's the beauty of what it means to have a soul. You see, some people use that from a defeatist standpoint. Well, I'm never going to catch up, so what's the point of trying, right? But they're missing the entire beauty of it. The beauty of it is is that as long as you're alive, there's what to accomplish. You can never stop accomplishing. You'll never run out of things to accomplish for as long as you live. Because you're always trying to have your inner golden aspect Catch up with your outer. With your outer. Okay. So, by the way, before we move on to the next point, I just, I just want you to know that this parallel of the seventh being the inside and the middle, and also being the ultimate destination, the crown at the end, is paralleled within Shabbos itself. Because there are two opinions about where Shabbos falls during the week, if you're not familiar with this. The standard one we say is, that it's Yom Hashvi, it's the seventh day, and it's the end of the week. Right? That's true. But there's another opinion that Shabbos is actually in the middle of the week. And how is that? How does that work? What's the math behind that? You see, because you can keep Shabbos till Tuesday. And then you need a day to prepare for Shabbos. So if you factor that in, that you're keeping Shabbos like, till the last point where you can keep Shabbos, right? That already puts Shabbos in the middle of the week. And there, it correlates with the Eitz Chaim, the tree of life, which was the middle of the Garden of Eden. Okay? So, there's a way to learn it out that Shabbos is actually the middle of the week, and it's also the end of the week. Um... Yeah. Okay. So, so making God king over all the world. This is the main work of Rosh Hashanah. And in some way, that's kind of easy. If a person is coming from a believing standpoint, if they're not, then I guess it's harder. But if a person is coming from a believing standpoint and they understand that, where did this world come from? How could this exceedingly complex system continue to maintain itself, much less exist in the first place, right? If a person is coming from the place that, okay, for sure, for sure there's a God, then saying, okay, God is king is almost obvious. But let's go back to something that we were saying before. God takes a piece of himself and he puts it inside each and every one of us. That's our soul. Which means we have an aspect of the king inside of us. Now, Part of making God king means making that piece of Him inside of us, our souls, king over our bodies. That's another aspect of what it means to make God king. To make our soul the dominant force in our life. So there's a beautiful, there's a beautiful um, story connected to this. Which is that... Um, you know, there was a, 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 a post, we don't really have it anymore. There was a post among the Jewish people, it was called the Reish Galusa. And we actually still daven for the Reish Galusa on Shabbos, even though there is no, no one's doing, 
No one's been the Reish Galusa for uh, many, many centuries. That means basically the leader of the exile, the leader of the diaspora. And this was the, basically the president, the number one person in charge of all of the Jewish people. And, and that was a real post. It was the most powerful post there was. And where you really had the Reish Galusa was basically during the 800s, during the Gaonic period in Babel, in Babylonia. And um, during his life, the Sad Yagon was the Reish Galusa. He was number one. He was in charge of everyone. Okay? So the story goes like this. The Sad Yagon was staying at an inn, and he was leaving the inn, and uh, there was a big crowd of people standing outside the inn to, to greet him. And they were all very excited, and, you know, and the innkeeper runs out and says, you know, what's all the fuss like? Everyone's making such a big deal about this person. Who is this person? And he, they find out, you had in your inn the Reish Galusa. You had, Sadia Gon was a guest in your, in your inn. And he runs up to the Sadia Gon and he says, please forgive me. I'm so embarrassed. I didn't know who I had with me. Right? If I had known, I would have treated you so differently. Right? And the Sadia Gon started crying. And he said, why, you know, why are you crying? He says, because after 120, right, when I go up and stand before the heavenly court, it's going to be even clearer to me than it is now that I have the Melech residing inside of me. I have a piece of God who's a guest in my inn. And how am I treating, how am I treating him? How am I treating this guest which lives inside of me? Right? Heavy, right? Heavy. So, okay. So, so, so making God king of the world, that's one level. God making, God making king of ourselves, another level entirely. Alright, so let's talk about praying for a moment, because this period of time, it's all about praying. It's all about connecting. And um, I saw this thought... And I, I thought it was so beautiful. I, I don't remember where I saw it exactly. Which is that if you wanted, a, let's say you wanted to arrange a meeting, a private appointment, let's say with the President of the United States, right? Or the Prime Minister of England, or Germany, or France, right? Or, you know, whoever it is. One on one. Just you and the President, or the King, or the Prime Minister. Okay? What would that involve? How hard would that be to do? Let's say you want to meet with the President of the United States. You'd probably have to give, I don't know, maybe a million dollars to the Democratic Party, or if there's a Republican, to the Republican, maybe, maybe more, I don't know, or to his re-election campaign, or something. It's not, it's not going to be cheap <laughs> to get one-on-one with the President. It's, just, it's not, you know? So, or a Prime Minister. It's not. So, what's so incredible is, God is the king of the entire universe. And you want a private meeting with him? All you have to do is open up your mouth. (laughs) You open up your mouth, you've got a one-on-one private session with the master of the universe. That's incredible. That's incredible, actually. I mean, there's so much that's, that's... Just forget about everything else. How about just the humility of God? 
the humility of God that he allows, that he put that dynamic into effect. That alone is just a wonder. Okay? Now, now in terms of approaching God, there's something that, uh, that's in the Siddur, and this is from the Abu Draham. And he was uh, one of he was the master of explaining the prayer book. Okay, so he's sort of the authoritative source on the prayer book, and he brings something which is it blew my mind when I saw this. So, if you look at the Shmona Esrei, the Amida of of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, as soon as we do the standard opening, there's a phrase that we say in front of all the requests that follow, Uvechein Tain. And that prefaces everything that we say. And it appears, I think, about three times at the beginning of each of the paragraphs of requests. Uvechein Tain. And so, the Abu Draham says, do you know where that phrase comes from? Now we're going, okay, this is Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. All right? And it's in the middle of the prayer book. So, the last place I would even imagine that this comes from is where it comes from. It comes from the Megillus Esther, something that Esther says before she risks her life in order to see King Ahasuerus. Okay? Now, where exactly? I'll tell you where it is. It's in Megillus Esther, chapter 4, verse 16. You can see it with your own eyes. And what's the exact context? Because this is the parallel for us approaching the king on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Okay? The parallel is the following. Mordechai has just found out about the decree to annihilate the Jews. Alright? Now, what a lot of people don't understand about the Purim story, this is one of the greatest parts of the Purim story, but if you just kind of read the Megillah, you, there's a great likelihood that you won't understand the timeline of the story itself. Okay? So, when Mordechai found out that this decree was put on the Jewish people, it wasn't supposed to go into effect for another 11 months. Okay? Because he finds out in the month of Nisan... Nisan is the first month of the year. And it was supposed to kick in in Adar. And that's when we celebrate Purim, is in Adar. Adar is the last month of the year. Okay? It's the twelfth month of the year. So there was a lot of time to work with in terms of trying to get this decree rescinded. Okay? So Mordechai finds out about the decree... And he says to Esther, at this point Esther is married to Ahasuerus. And if you remember, there's a law in place. And this law is that anyone who comes to the king unannounced is killed. You have to have a serious appointment to see the king. Or you're killed. Okay? So, Mordechai says to Esther you've got to go right in to see the king right away. And Esther said, slow down. <laughs> you know, we got, first of all, 
<laughs> you know, we don't have all the dialogue here printed, but she must have been thinking we got, A, we got 12 months. But here's what she does say. Here's what she does say. She says, the king hasn't called me for a month. Any day now, he's going to call me, and I'm going to have my private time with the king. And that's going to be, you know, husband and wife, that's going to be a good moment for me to bring up this whole situation. And Mordechai says, listen, who knows that you, were, that you weren't created for exactly this moment? And that your entire lineage, your entire, the generations of your family were just leading up to this moment. And that the Jewish people are going to be saved no matter what. Because that's God's promise to us. So if, if it doesn't come through you, if you don't seize your opportunity, if it doesn't come through you, it's going to come through someone else. So Esther, here's the logic of this. And by the way, I heard a wonderful explanation. Why did she have to risk her life? Because of a, what we call mida keneged mida. That's um, this sort of divine balance that what you put in is what you get out in terms of the way God works with us, in terms of the universe, okay? And since there was a decree of death on all of the Jewish people, for her to be able to have sort of like the spiritual leverage point in order to reverse it, she herself had to risk her own life in order to get rid of the death decree on the Jewish people. Do you understand that? That mida keneged mida, that sort of leverage balancing point. So she says, and now here's the point, now we can understand what's, now we have the whole context, okay? She says, okay, uvechein tein, and so I'm going to go in. She says these words, I'm going to go in, and if I perish, I perish. Okay, so we use these words, which is the turning point of her life, and it's the turning point of the salvation of the entire Jewish people. Those words, when she makes up her resolve, I'm going in. And that's what we say before we utter our, our requests before God on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. You know what? God, I'm going in. <laughs> I'm risking everything. I'm risking everything that I was. I'm risking everything that I'm going to be. I'm going in. And Rabbi Simcha Weinberg says something so beautiful. How did she have the strength to do it? Because she knows the king is the one who loves her the most. God is the one who loves us the most. That's where we get the strength in order to approach the king to begin with. And also he raises another point, which is very interesting that she realizes that if she wants to bring about change, she has to be proactive. And now we return back to one of the ideas that we started with, that everything is in God's hands and everything is in our hands. So we have to take that positive action and approach the king. And if I perish, I perish. I'm going in. I'm going in. So there's, a, there's that sense of security, there's that sense of, because God loves us, but that sense of empowerment, and that sense that we realize that it's upon us to act. That we need to act. If we want to affect change in our life, we have to act. Okay.
So now, a very important halacha. We talk about making God king, and we talk about going in and everything like that. But, but who's God? And there's a very simple halacha that all of us can do. Very easy. Probably the easiest one you're ever going to come across. But a very important one. And very symbolic in terms of understanding our relationship with God. Which is when you bow down before God in the prayers, you say, Baruch Atah, and you bow during that. And then you stand straight up and you say, Hashem's name. Hashem's name has to be said while you're standing upright. Now why is that so important? So important because God is the one who picks us up. God is not the one who desires that we walk around stooped over and bent over and in this humiliated state, if you will. That's not what God wants. God is not the taskmaster looking to whip us into submission. That's not who God is. So we have to stand up when we say Hashem's name because God is lifting us up. That's the relationship that He wants with us. For us to be upright. And for us to serve Him in dignity. That's what He wants. So, so, Rabbi Weinberg mentioned something uh, very amazing. He said that there was a case, it's a medical case, in 1992 in Austria, there was a, a woman, um, 42, 46, I'm sorry, Hannah, and she underwent a neurological examination in a hospital there. And the doctor asked her to describe him. And she said, well, you know, he's got short hair and a little bit of a tan, and he's clean-shaven. And then the doctor asked her to describe something that he was holding up in front of her. And she said, well, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a notebook, the type that children use in school, and there's some Latin written in it, but I can't quite make out what it is. Okay, so what's so far out about this story? The woman was blind. The man, the doctor, was actually standing behind a curtain, and what he was holding up was a comb. You ready for this? She was blind and she didn't know she was blind. So she was, it's a rare neurological disorder. So she was describing all these things with the confidence that she was seeing things as they were. And not only wasn't she seeing things as they were, she had no idea that she was blind to begin with. So this is a a very, very potent metaphor. That what are we blind to in our own lives, about our own selves, that we don't even realize that we're blind to? Right? So this is, so this is a big deal. You know, trying to, and this is what we need good friends for, maybe a psychologist for, maybe a, a leader for, to be able to sit down and to help us open our eyes about those things that 
that we might ask you, have you ever seen those toys they're, that they, they're like, kind of like you wind them up and they'll go in a certain direction and then they hit a wall and they keep on going into the wall. <laughs> they, they don't have any insight that they keep on going into the wall, right? So we don't want to be those people. Right? We don't want that to be us. And that's, that, that really, in our own lives, really requires a real Ubechain moment. To be able to take that step to say, okay, what's going on with me? Why am I not reaching the next step that I want to reach? Am I one of these guys who's just walking into the wall over and over again and I don't even realize it? I don't want to be that person. What is it? What am I doing wrong? So, so my good friend, Rabbi Shlomo Katz, told over a story about the Slonim Rebbe, and, uh, and it goes like this. The Slonim Rebbe was at an inn, and he sees a Jew who's just shining. And, you know... He, the Rebbe, is like, wow, I, I've got to get this guy's story. Because I don't know what he's doing, but he's doing something awesome. And I've I got to know. i got to know. So he goes up to him, and he says, you know, tell me, tell me about yourself. You know, who are you? And the person says, who am I? You know, I'm nobody special. You know, so I'm not descended from any great rabbis or not a rabbi myself or anything like this. He says, yeah, but what about your learning? Like, tell me about your learning. He goes, well, I'm a yeshiva dropout. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I, I'm not much of a learner, honestly, you know. He says, ah, but you, but you really daven, don't you? You have an incredible, tell me about how you pray. He goes, I really don't have much concentration for the prayers. I, I can't really do the prayers so much. So the Rebbe is just... You know, because Rebbe's have incredibly highly attuned, you know, radars. And they, they are extremely spiritually sensitive. So the Slonimer Rebbe can't imagine that he was that wrong, but apparently, you know, maybe he was. So he thanks the man and tells him it was nice to meet him, and he turns away. And then the person says, wait a second, you know something? There is one thing that I do. And he says, oh yeah, what is it? He says, you know, every night before I go to bed, he says, you know, I don't even have patience to go through the whole Kriya Shema, Alhamita, the whole bedtime Shema service, you know. It's too long for me. He says, but I came up with a prayer myself. I made up a prayer and this is the prayer that I say to God every night. I say that if you believe that tomorrow I can live up to the dreams you have for me, if you believe that tomorrow I can do what you need me to do in this world, then I have one request. Give me one more day. Give me one more day. But if you don't believe that I can live up to the dreams that you have for me, if you believe that I can't do what you need me to do in this world, then don't wake me up. 
And so the fact that God gives me another day, every day, is proof that God believes that I can live up to what He wants me to do. And that I can be who He wants me to be. It's proof. And the fact that God right now is on the threshold of giving all of us another year, not just another day, but another year to do what we need to do, shows that He believes that we can do what He wants us to do. It's the greatest proof there is. You know, if someone writes you a check and gives you the money, and you cash the check and you have the money, that's the proof that He gave you the money. (laughs) You don't need more proof than that. You have the money in your hand. You don't need more proof than that. Is He going to give me the money? You have the money in your hand. God has given us another year. He's done it. He's done it. This is the greatest sign that God believes in us. The greatest sign. The greatest sign. And you know, I asked, uh, I have to thank TD. TD, I know you're listening, so thank you, brother. I want to read what you sent me, okay? So I asked a question last week from the Nishmas Kolchai. And, uh, you know, I was saying that this is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite things in all of Torah. I'll just give you a run into it, just because I love the poetry of it so much. We're just showing how, how much we're thanking God. And what this is saying is basically if we were supermen, we still wouldn't be able to thank you, God, sufficiently. Even if we were superhuman. Okay, so listen to the way the, uh, the Nishmas Kolchai puts it. And to you alone we give thanks. We're talking to God. Where our mouth is full of the song as the sea and our tongue is full of joyous song as its multitude of waves, our lips as full of praise as the breath of the heavens and our eyes as brilliant as the sun and the moon and our hands as outspread as eagles of the sky and our feet as swift as hinds, we still could not thank you sufficiently, Hashem our God and God of our fathers, and to bless your name our King for even... For even one of the thousand, thousand, thousands, thousands, and myriad, myriads of favors, miracles and wonders that you perform for our ancestors and for us. So I've been wondering for a while, that, that's a really big number, right? What actually is that number? So TD sent me an email with what that number is. He did the math, Okay. So he wrote, I was about to get ready for Rosh Hashanah services, and I thought I'd just take a couple of moments to figure out the math for the Nishmas Kol Chai prayer that you mentioned in Sunday's talk and to share it with you in case someone hadn't already. So I'm going to cut down, I'm going to cut down to, the, to the end here. If you counted one of the favors a second, it would take 317 billion, 97 million, 920,000 years to list all of the great things that Hashem, all of the things that Hashem has done for us and our ancestors. 317 billion years. Right? And Eric pointed out, that's a lot longer than the world has existed. If you figure, like, modern science is saying these days that the world, the world is about 14 billion years old, approximately. 
17 billion years. So that's that's more than 17. <laughs> I don't I'll read that. I'll read that number again. It would take 317,097,920,000 years to count them all, right? So how good is God? How good is God? You know, and I'm telling you, you know, I was doing this thing on Rosh Hashanah around the table and just in various places, and I did it in shul yesterday during uh, the third meal. I was asking everyone to name one happy thing that happened to them during the year. Not necessarily the happiest, just one nice thing that happened to them during the year, and one thing they want to work on improving. Right? So, there was a man at the table. People were saying various things, you know? And there was a man at the table who said... Um, well, this year I uh, went back to, um, to Poland where I survived a death march. And I went back to the place. And I was the only person to go back. And um, that was one happy thing that happened to me this year. And I was like, wow, you know. I was talking about going to a Taylor Swift concert, you know, getting a free ticket to that. <laughs> this person's talking about surviving a death march. In World War II and going back in Kanainohara, great health. He's strong and vital going back to where they tried to kill him and where who knows how many people they killed on that march. Right, Gary, were you there when he said it? No? Okay. You, you were there. Okay. Okay. So, unbelievable. Unbelievable, unbelievable stuff. So, so let me just finish up with, um, I have um, Azriel Hirsch Friedman to thank for this. I haven't met him, but um, he, did a great, he did a great thing. He, he wrote down things to pray for, right? Because sometimes we don't even know what to pray for. We're standing there and we know, okay, it's like, Someone hands you the microphone. Have you ever been at like a wedding or something like that? And, you know, the videographer is there and they hand you the microphone and it's like, I don't know what to say. Come on, give me a break, you know. It's like, what's worse? You know, on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, you're standing there and it's sort of like, and go, you're on. Three, two, one. What do you got? It's like, ah. So... So, just in case you're part of that club, I'm often part of that club, here's some things to pray for, okay? Help me quit daydreaming about someone else's life and start living my own. Help me discover what I'm passionate about, my unique contribution to the world. Give me the organization and motivation to do something about it, and the perseverance not to give up on it. Let me believe that success comes not from fame and fortune, but by doing what is right. Help me overcome my biases to see where I have shortchanged myself and others. Let me, let me quit trying to prove myself to people I don't really care about. Let me stop settling for a life where being entertained is a higher goal. Help me to stop wasting my time on frivolity. 
Help me to be unafraid to confront my challenges. Help me make decisions that are difficult and stick to them. Help me consider the long-term effects that my actions have on my life and on others. Help me invest my life in what is truly meaningful and to quick and to quit settling for quick fixes. Help me not to be cynical or suspicious of people. Help me to quit beating myself up for not being perfect and to focus instead on developing my strengths. Help me to use all that you have given me well so that you can give me much more. Azriel Hirsch Friedman. Yeah. And if you want a copy of that, by the way, that's printed on H.com. If you uh, search for his name, that's on H.com. You can find it there. Um, You know, I don't know how to end this any, any, any better than that, but let me just maybe just, just say one thing from the heart and that's it. So, you know, so, so this is our lives right now. Right now. And I, I hope that I can say this in a way that doesn't sound cliche because, you know, sometimes, you know what cliches are? Cliches are when people really nail the truth and they, they, they got it right, and then everyone references the time that everyone got it right, but then people turn off to it, because it doesn't sound new and fresh anymore. And then you wait for someone else to nail it again, you know? But cliches are cliches because the person really got it right, you know? So I hope that I can express this thought without it sounding like a cliche, you know? But... but our life isn't something that's just around the corner. This is our life right now. This is it right now. This is it. And maybe it's going to change. And for all of us, we should all get what we're praying for and all what we want. And it should, if there are things that we think will make it better, we should get all those things. But meanwhile, that's not our life. Meanwhile, this is our life right now, right now. So, you know something weird about being a guitar player? You don't wake up and know how to play the guitar. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. You borrow someone's guitar, or you buy a guitar, and then you take lessons, or you go on the internet. You can take music lessons on the internet, by the way. You can learn to play the guitar on the internet, by the way. And you know what happens? You're bad. It sounds bad for a really long time. You know why? Because you don't play well. That's why it sounds bad. But then something happens over time. If you keep on playing, you start playing well. And people want to listen. And then all of a sudden, it's sort of like, I know how to play the guitar. But you know why you know how to play the guitar? Because you sat and you were willing to be bad for a long period of time. So, so this is it right now. Figure out what it is that you actually want to do. You know, if you want to go to London, it's, it's, it's not free, but it's not a million dollars. You can save enough money to buy a ticket to go to London if you want to go to London. You can arrange it in your schedule 
to go to London if you want to go to London. That's not an unreachable, ah, I'll never be able to... That's attainable. Playing the guitar is attainable. If you want to move to Israel, you actually can do that. You can actually say, you know what, I'm moving to Israel. I'm going to live in Israel. Why not? It's better than it's here. Might as well go there. Let's go there. Whatever you want to do, you want to learn how to learn? You know, the Torah is amazing because there's so many different parts to it. There's stuff that you can sit down and open up a book and bam, you can get it. You are now one thought richer. Or one life-changing thought richer. You can do that. But if you want to master the Torah, that takes years and years and years and years and years. Because it's phenomenally complex. But you can do it. How do you do it? You resolve to learn every day. Every day you're going to learn a little bit. Because the Torah is very tricky in one particular respect. You need not just brains, you need brains plus time to reflect on what you've learned. And you need brains plus time to integrate all the different teachings. Time is a critical factor in mastering Torah. So you have to get time on your side. I know in terms of my own learning, half of what I know, to the extent that I know anything, is only because I've had the time to integrate and reflect on things. So use time as your friend. Because that's a critical aspect to understanding Torah. And you learn a little every day, even if it's just one thought. Even if it's just you open up a book, you read two lines, and that's it. But believe me, over the course of a lifetime, that's major. It's major. It's not nothing. It's major, actually. Because you may not have learned a lot, but you learned something and you got time on your side. And one last thing, as we approach Yom Kippur, which is everyone has to just have it strong in their head. God is forgiving everybody. But the person-to-person things, you don't get forgiveness, you don't get forgiveness for that unless you ask that person for forgiveness. If you stole 20 bucks from a guy, you don't get forgiveness from God for stealing 20 bucks from a guy. You get forgiveness for giving the guy back his 20 bucks or his you know? So between people, Yom Kippur doesn't work on the between people thing. You have to do that. And the other stuff, Shabbos and all the rest, that that God will forgive you for. Okay? And uh, and the last thing is, I want to invite everyone to the Happy Minion for Yom Kippur. You know, especially if you want to divide up your time between different places. Kol Nidre, the, the opening service is really special. And also the, the wrap-up, Ni'ila, is really special. And the whole thing is special. But if you can make it, it would be great to see you all. And uh, it should just be the best, 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 best year. And just thank you for allowing me to, you know, just just share and, and I love you. And... Uh, and really, I'm, I'm davening for all of you. And uh, daven for me too, please. <laughs> and God willing, we should just see great things this year. Yeah.